Psalm 119. (laughs) Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. They do no wrong but follow his ways. You have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. I will praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. I will obey your decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. Our second scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 9. And so, brothers and sisters, I could not speak to you as spiritual people, but rather as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for solid food. Even now you are still not ready, for you still are of the flesh. For as long as there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving according to human inclinations? For when one says, I belong to Paul, and another says, I belong to Apollos, are you not merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. The one who plants and the the one who waters have a common purpose, and each will receive wages according to the labor of each. For we are God's servants working together. You are God's field, God's building. In this season of the gospel that we're in, from Advent until Pentecost, we've been talking about and continue to talk about the resilience of the gospel. Now, resilience is not one of those words that is commonly used at church, which is kind of why I like it, Um, but it seems like an important word for us. Uh, The gospel must be resilient if we are to be a culture of conversation. We've, we, we like talking about being a culture of conversation, but then when we talk about like what happens when conversation doesn't go my way, well, that requires a little resilience in our lives, unless we think all conversations ought to go our way, in which case we have, need to have another conversation. We've talked about the characteristics of a resilient life perspective, preparation, purpose, promise. We've talked about God's resiliency through Christ as pioneer and as incarnated one. And in these uh, weeks since the Epiphany, we've been talking about how the church is called to be resilient, that we're to be a place of welcome and a place of service, a place that ministers and a place that seeks to clarify that which is uh, true and beautiful and good over the merely expedient, a place that does justice, loves mercy, walks humbly with God. And this morning we want to uh, look at uh, the first of two uh, messages on uh, the foundations of resilience. What really are the fundamental building blocks of a resilient church? The other the other pieces form around it, but what's really at the core, what's, what really becomes foundational to the way we are as a church and the way we are resilient in the world. 
Now what I have learned in preparation for this message is that there are foundations and there are foundations. The word foundation is a curious one in the English language. Uh, There are at least three different kinds of foundations. There are building substructures that you lay out and then build upon. And if you own a house in Riverside, California, it's usually just a concrete slab on graded soil. If you're trying to build the replacement World Trade Center, you want to dig as deep as the building is tall, uh, and that becomes foundation. That's one kind of foundation. There's also the foundation that I'm told is the uh, base layer of makeup. Uh, I have no firsthand observation of this uh, or experience, but uh, I am I'm told that uh, that's called foundation. Uh, and then there are organizations that uh, dispense funds for charitable causes. Those are also known as foundations. Curious that all three of those would be called foundations. I still haven't figured out why. But there are foundations, and then there are foundations. What seems to be the common thread is that foundations create space to build upon. Whether you're putting makeup on in the morning, you're going to build a face, that's language I've heard, Um, or whether you're dispensing money for a major project. Uh, Foundations create space to build upon. Foundations provide means to make a statement. If you uh, lay a beautiful foundation, you can build a glorious house. Foundations support resources. They allocate stress. They put stress in and through the building. And they make the most of the assets available. And foundations provide for creative problem solving. What are the foundations of a resilient church? Our scripture passages today from the Psalms and from 1 Corinthians speak to two of the three foundations. Next week we'll speak to the third one. Um, But they speak to two of the three foundations the church needs to be the people of God in the world as it is. Psalm 119, verses 1 through 8, is a love poem to the foundational nature of Scripture. It's a Hebrew acrostic poem. Instead of going from A to Z, it goes from Aleph to Ta. Okay. Um, And it is an acrostic poem on the Torah, on, on the Scriptures, as a source of joy, refreshment, and communion with God. Now, it's important to really hear that. Because the first thing that flashes through our mind when we hear Old Testament is law, rules, stuff to do that makes no sense. And that's not the view of the psalmist. The view of the psalmist is the Torah is a source of joy. It is is everything. It refreshes the soul. It brings us into communion with God. Folks, the Old Testament is an amazing book. And we like to think of ourselves, well, we're we're New Testament Christians. Well, here's a little news flash. 
No Old Testament, no New Testament. <laughs> Takes one to have the other. And so we need the whole of God's Word. In fact, one of the preaching experiments I've been trying uh, in this season is to link an Old Testament passage and a New Testament passage. I don't know if anybody caught on to that. Um, it was one of those subtle things, you know. Um, and uh, <laughs> Well, let me try it again. And I'll use real small words. This is all going to be on the podcast, isn't it? Yeah. Wow, I don't think I've ever had that, that kind of critique of my preaching before. Old Testament, New Testament, okay. So here is, here is the psalmist declaring his love for the Scriptures. Not, not just his love for God as, as, an, as, a, as a person out there somewhere, but his love for the way in which God has also revealed himself through the Torah, through the Scriptures. Uh, the, 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 the scriptures become the way in which one comes to know and experience Yahweh. And so this, this psalm is the longest psalm in the scriptures, 176 verses. Uh, 22 couplets of eight verses each, which I think, if I multiply that, it comes out to 176. I hope it does. <clears throat> and it begins with these two words of blessing in verses 1 through 3. The blessing of walking according to the Torah and of keeping and seeking to keep the Torah. Now, that's not often how we think about blessing, is it? Usually we think about blessing as something God does to us. Oh Lord, you've blessed me with good health. Oh Lord, you've blessed me with uh, great technology and a, and, a, and a mobile phone that talks back to the pastor. Uh, you've, you've blessed us with so much. The blessing here is that the psalmist could walk in the way of the Torah. Could, could understand God's desire for his life and respond to it accordingly. And in fact, in verse 4, the, the psalmist declares that, that God, that Yahweh, is the source of the Torah. That this is God's Word revealed. And so it becomes foundational to his life. It becomes the way in which he tries to unpack and understand how he is to live in the world as it is. 
And verses 5 through 8 then represent a prayer that begins with a, a petition for increased obedience. <clears throat> the Pharisees of Jesus' day had many prayers. Some of them were misogynistic and uh, horrible to listen to, but one makes sense. The psalmist would pray uh, because they, they had counted in the Torah. There were 613 separate commandments to follow. And the Pharisee would pray, Oh, God of the universe, that you would give me a thousand commandments to follow. Ten thousand commandments to follow. Give me more of yourself, Lord. Tell me more of what you would have me do. People who pray that, there's hope for them. We like to paint the Pharisees as total jerks and idiots and people that had it coming. If you can pray, oh Lord, give me thousands of commandments. Give me so much of yourself that I get lost in following you. There's something there. And this petition in verse 5 is the root of that. A prayer for increased obedience. A, a confession in verse 6 for, for not being adequate to the task. And then in verses 7 and 8, a, a bit of a lament, a, a desire to praise more and to obey more. Eh, we're good maybe at one of those prayers, at one of those laments. So we might praise God more, but obey Him more? It's a little, that's a little dicey for us sometimes. Because obeying God leads us Sometimes in directions that we aren't quite sure where the outcome is. And as good Westerners, we like to know how the story ends before we commit ourselves to it. And so the psalmist opens this long love poem with his desire to be lost in God's commandments, to be lost in the Torah, to be totally given over head over heels in love with God's Word. Of course, the Corinthian church is the story of how not to do church. Those folks in Corinth could never quite get it right. <clears throat> and the text read for us this morning from 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 9, is Paul's attempt to try to reimagine leadership and authority in the church. You see, at the root of the Corinthians' crisis, crises, and there were, there were many of them, but at the root of it, uh, at, at least one of the root causes, was this notion of factionalism in leadership. Well, I belong to Paul, and I belong to Apollos, and I belong to Peter, and... Well, now I'm really spiritual. I just belong to Jesus. That's what's going on in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. When Paul says, what are you doing? What are you thinking? Were you baptized into my name? Were you baptized into Apollos' name? No, this is all about Jesus. And the Corinthian church was breaking apart on the shoals of this factionalism that had them... Uh, hemmed in and held up and stuck. And they were disintegrating over it and unable to hold each other accountable, 
to the ethic Christ had called them to, unable to fulfill the mission that God had given them. They were simply stuck. And Paul's answer for that factionalism is servant leadership. Now, servant leadership is not, if you're a leader, serve me. That's not how servant leadership works. Servant leadership is instead a view of looking at leadership and authority that says we're all in this together. We all have a common call from God. It's called the Scriptures. We all stand on that together. The early Anabaptists, our spiritual forebears, understood that reading the Scriptures and interpreting the Scriptures was not just the job of the church hierarchy, but it was the role and privilege of everyone in the body of Christ. That's why instead of publishing massive books of theology, the Anabaptists were great at publishing pamphlets that talked about a single issue and explored different kinds of spiritual issues at the time uh, and, and really spoke to the issues of the day rather than the great theological controversies of their era. Plus, for the Anabaptists, since it was illegal to be an Anabaptist, it was a lot easier to have a little stack of pamphlets. Uh, if you were selling apples on the street corner, you could have it underneath the barrel and not get caught instead of selling great big books of theology, which are a little harder to carry around. Some of you who've carried my books know that. And so Paul calls the Corinthian church to engage in servant leadership. In verse 5, he talks about the call to servant leadership. And the call to servant leadership simply comes down to the call to evangelism to tell the good news to people who need to hear good news, to declare God's victory over the powers and principalities, to, to come together and declare the goodness of God. Paul talks about the variety of servant leadership in verse 6. He, he says, well, you know, I planted seed and Apollos watered it. But God gives the increase. Um, I went to uh, a master's in business administration program in church management in the mid-90s. And one of the courses that was required in that program was marketing the church. I even have big textbooks that marketing the congregation. And... Uh, as you can tell now, I'm not a huge believer in marketing the congregation. But uh, back in the day, as it were, you could predict how many folks you could bring through the front door if you would do a certain marketing campaign. Uh, there was uh, in vogue in the early 90s a, a way of doing church planting where you simply mobilized people or you got an automated uh, phone bank, and you robocalled 20,000 names in the phone book. And if you called those 20,000 names twice and sent them two pieces of mail in between, well, you, you would get 200 people at your first service. What they didn't 
tell you until they had some experience under it is that you would lose half of those people in the first six months and you'd lose half of those people in the next six months. And so in about a year and a half of effort, you'd have a core group of about 50 people. Well, there are other ways to get 50 people together <laughs> that don't involve marketing. Because Paul said, I plant and Apollos waters, but it's God who gives the increase. And when we lose sight of that, that, that growing a church is not formulaic, growing a church is not programmatic, growing a church doesn't depend on marketing. It depends on faithful planters and faithful waterers and God giving the increase. And no one person is both a planter and a waterer. I've lived in Southern California now for close to 30 years. But I grew up in a part of the world where if you planted seed, God watered the land. In the Midwest, it rains. And I've never quite figured out how to water adequately. So we plant, we plant stuff all the time at our house. And then we dig it up and throw it away because it died because it either didn't get enough water or it got too much water. Never quite figured out that whole watering thing. I'm a planter, not a waterer when it comes to gardens, I guess. But it's God who gives the increase. It's God's harvest, not ours. Paul goes on in verse 7 to talk about the source of servant leadership, and that source is God, that it's God that calls us into leadership, calls us into ministry, calls us to be his people. It's not me taking on that role because I'm so smart or I'm so talented or I'm so gifted. It's God's call. The reward of servant leadership, Paul unpacks in verse 8. He says there's one purpose, but each are rewarded according to their gifts. And then he talks about perspective in verse 9. That we are co-workers in God's business. Uh, I've, uh, I've worked with a lot of church planters and, and folks trying to revitalize churches over the year, and it gets gets easy to find ourselves using the language, particularly among pastors, of talking about my church. And I have to stop myself when I do that. And I realize it's not, not mine. It's, it's God's church. It's his business. I, I am on his payroll, not the other way around. God doesn't perform for me. Uh, I work for him. Paul defines all that as servant leadership. And you may be wondering at this point, well, so what? what? What's the point of this? Well, well, the importance is that we're all Paul and we're all Apollos. You see, church is not a preaching point for a pastor to convene and deliver you know, whatever wisdom he has or doesn't have. We're a missionary community. You are Paul. You are Apollos. And Christ is in all of us, calling us all 
to be co-laborers in his field together. Factionalism in the church doesn't require multiple pastors. It simply requires two people. You can create a faction in a pretty small group. Gary West, is, since he's not here this morning, I can tell this story. Gary West is fond of the, <laughs> fond of the joke where, uh, where the guy is rescued on a deserted island and there are three buildings uh, that he's built, three little thatched huts. And uh, the people who rescue him says, oh, what are those thatched huts? He says, oh, well, I live in that one. Well, what are the other two? He says, well, uh, that other one is the church I go to. Well, what's the other one? He says, well, that's the church I used to go to. <laughs> Factionalism can even happen, I guess, if you have multiple personality disorder. <laughs> but we have to reimagine foundationally our call. Our call together is to be in ministry. We're either in ministry or we're in trouble. And the Corinthian church got it all wrong. They had, they, had, they had hitched a star to Paul or Apollos or Cephas. And Paul's saying, that's, that's missing the point. We're all called to, to minister together as co-workers in God's business. So to be resilient, it requires some foundation. A resilient church is head over heels in love with the Scriptures. I, I have yet to find a church of resiliency that didn't love the Scriptures. Not make an idol out of it, not put it in the place of God, that's not what I'm saying, but who simply couldn't get enough of digging into God's Word. And you know, this is the coolest thing. And I've said this to you before. You, you guys actually pay me to study the Bible. How, how wonderful is that? I mean, that, talk about a gift. Thank you for that privilege that I get to spend hours and hours and hours each week studying and reflecting on the Scriptures, which is the thing I've always wanted to do my entire life. Bless you for that. But a resilient church is head over heels in love with the Scriptures together. A resilient church welcomes many leaders, each of whom are servants. Again, one of the things I think we have going for us here is a sense of a community of leaders that it doesn't all reside with the pastor making the decision, but that there is empowerment among the body, within the body, to do things in ministry together and sometimes on your own. To take, to take risks, to take chances, to take flight. And sometimes that means we crash and burn, and sometimes it means we trip over each other, and sometimes it gets messy. But that I'd rather have that kind of messiness than the cleanliness of nothing happening. You know, mausoleums are incredibly clean places because nobody but the dead lives there. I'd rather have a messy, sticky, goofy church full of people who are trying to live out the kingdom way 
And a resilient church expects the same character from its leaders, even as they function differently. That, that we're all in this together. And that we will all walk with Christ together. And we will struggle together. And we will have questions together. And we will make mistakes together. And we will forgive together. And we will move on together. Resiliency requires foundation. So this morning, some questions to reflect on. What's, what's truly foundational to our spiritual formation, to our discipleship, to our missional life together? What, what's really at the foundation? Scriptures, servant leadership. What else? How important are the scriptures to our common life, to our lives as individuals, and to our life together as a congregation? And how do we understand the role of servant leadership in our midst? One more thing. It's one of my all-time favorite quotes from Max Dupree. The first responsibility of a leader is to define reality. The last is to say thank you. In between, the leader is a servant. We are all leaders. We are all servants. And we all journey together trying to define the reality, the world as it is, but also the reality of the world as God intends it to be. And in the midst of all that, we learn to say thank you to each other. And with that note, <laughs> I, I, I might use uh, my more traditional talkback line. Of course, I could be wrong, but I think we've already established that this morning. So what are your impressions and thoughts about the foundation of what it means to be a resilient church? First responsibility of a servant leader is to define reality. The last is to say thank you. And in between, the leader is a servant. We are all called as a missionary community to be leaders of God's work in our community. We are all called to be servants. May we be resilient enough to define reality and to say thank you. Thanks be to God for his word. Amen.